could basically have an exposure to these light flashes before you leave. And then if you're taking a night flight, you could have a wearable device and wear it on the plane, receiving these light flashes. And it's going to adapt your system such that when you land in Italy, your circadian system's already adapted to Italy. So your brain's there and your body just landed. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Jamie Zeitzer, welcome to Human OS Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Obviously, Jamie and I know each other quite well. Jamie's one of my mentors in my PhD, and let's be honest, if, am I one of your best students? I have to say, the best graduate student I've ever had. Over 50. <laughs> Only graduate student, but you oh. know, that's a different issue. Oh, okay. <laughs> but amongst them, you are both the best and worst, which is quite impressive. Oh. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your background and how you kind of got into sciences overall and then what you pursued. And then we can talk a little bit about more what you do today and some of your current research. Sure. Well, I started in college. I went to Vassar, which is a small liberal arts institution in New York. And when I got there, I thought, I was either going to be a biology major, an English major, or a major in medieval studies. And I ended up doing the biology major, figuring that later that would perhaps better pay the bills. But I took as few science courses as possible at that point, and I ma mainly just took courses in the humanities. So that was good. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that very much. And you could have been a writer for Game of Thrones right now. You realize that. I know, I know. It was a path, but I have to say my writing skills... I have the uncanny ability to write incredibly long, indecipherable sentences that are grammatically correct. <laughs> I'm not sure how that translates to television. Well, perhaps this is the better path to pursue that. I think it might have been. I have to say that even in the humanities, I was attracted to courses in which we didn't discuss what the author spent. We discussed what the authors actually wrote. So that was a plus for me. And then I went to Harvard for graduate school. And there... I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I got a PhD in neurobiology. It was a large program, lots of different opportunities. And I knew I wanted to do something more on the behavioral side of things. And the first lab I went into, of course, was a molecular biology lab. And uh, I didn't particularly like the, uh, the approach. I mean, the lab was fantastic and, and the people were amazing, but doing molecular biology was not my thing. But the lab was that of Stephen Reppert. And he does, amongst other things, a lot of circadian biology work. So that got me interested in circadian biology, which I had never heard of prior to that. And then I took a class, which was for graduate students and advanced undergraduates, and that was on circadian rhythms. Uh, and that was co-taught. And one of the professors was Chuck Seisler, who ended up being my PhD advisor. And one of my classmates ended up becoming my wife. So... It was a successful class, I have to say. I didn't know that little fact. Yes. I was not her TA. I was in the class together. So Okay. So it was all, you know. It was all above board. board. Yeah. Yeah. And then I joined Chuck's lab and uh, several years later ended up with a PhD in neurobiology, focusing on circadian rhythms. I followed my wife to the Los Angeles area where she was in medical school at the time and uh, did a two-year stint in a neurology lab looking at how the brain changes with epilepsy and sleep. And then I spent five years up at Stanford as a postdoc, working on a primate model of sleep. And then I've uh, started my own lab, and it's been fun. Did you get the chance to work with Robert Sapolsky working with the primates during your postgrad work? I did not, actually. I know Robert. I've been on some committees with him. I have an incredible amount of respect for him. I think he's an amazing person and a fantastic researcher and professor and one of the best lecturers I've heard yeah. on campus. In fact, I'm kind of jealous that he is so supremely talented, but we didn't work together on these. I was mainly developing a model that was more laboratory-based uh, monitoring behaviors that can be associated with sleep. And we were doing very non-invasive kinds of work, similar to what Robert does in terms of basically just acquiring blood samples, CSF samples, things like that, but no terminal experiments in the monkeys. So unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to work directly with him on this project, which is unfortunate, but he's done some pretty amazing stuff with the primates in Africa and looking at social structures and things like that. I've actually brought him up on the show before with David Sampson, calling David Sampson the new generation of Robert Sapolsky just because he'll go and live with primates for a while and study their behaviors, which I definitely admire people that can put themselves 
into the environment of their subjects so thoroughly. Oh, yes. You got to understand what they're living in. Totally. So over the course of that, you had studied circadian biology with Chuck Seisler at Harvard. And for anybody who's not aware of Dr. Seisler, he's one of the luminaries of circadian biology in the field. He's definitely done a ton to advance the research in that space. So it's a great lineage that you've been a part of there. So then you continued to work with mostly circadian biology work at Stanford in your postgrad and continue today. Yeah, it was a bit peripatetic. I did some stuff in sleep, some stuff in circadian, working with humans, which I'm back to working with. Now I started working with humans and I took side trips in mice, rats, monkeys, cats, hamsters, fish. So I'm kind of an equal opportunity researcher, mainly using different species to answer specific questions when appropriate. And that's why we developed the monkey model. It was because we were particularly looking at uh, hypocretin, which is a peptide that's found in the brain, but not in the blood. And we were working with squirrel monkeys, which are very nice monkeys. They're from South America, and they are one of the few mammalian species besides humans that consolidate sleep into a single nighttime period, so at least have the capacity to do so. And that made us looking at them as a model was very interesting, especially because hypocretin, we think, is involved in that consolidation process. Yeah. So describe what consolidation means for somebody who's unfamiliar with that term. Sure. So, so basically, if you look at most mammals, you might call them nocturnal or diurnal some are even called crepuscular, which means basically having maximum activity at dawn and dusk. Coyotes. Yeah, or even the house cat. House cats basically can be active dawn and dusk mainly, but the rest of the day it's kind of random whether or not they're awake or asleep. And if you look out in the wild, a lot of predators have that kind of activity, figuring that they can optimize finding prey at the dawn and dusk transitions. And when you look at non-crepuscular species, so nocturnal, diurnal, you basically find is that they can change the patterns of their sleep and wake. So if you look at, for example, a mouse, a mouse in general is nocturnal, but if you provide them with various kinds of stimuli, they will change their pattern. And so there are certain mice where if you reduce the amount of food that they have, they'll actually become much more day active. There are other times where you can introduce stressors and their timing of their wake will become much more consolidated. So basically that when they're awake, it becomes much more continuous. And when they're asleep, it becomes much more continuous. And there are various environmental pressures that you can apply. Their system is saying, well, I'm mainly night active or I'm mainly day active. But given the right circumstances and the right environmental or internal pressures, I'll change my pattern. And this is not really what humans do. I mean, humans are volitional in the sense that we can choose to be awake or asleep or at least try to be asleep at different times of day. I mean, we've had plenty of people in my laboratory where you pay them a few hundred dollars and they will gladly stay up all night. But our sleep and wake system doesn't work in the same way in the sense that we have a period during the daytime that we're kind of programmed to be awake for a continuous stretch of time and that we have the capacity to be awake for 16 hours without any sort of environmental stimulation. So if you bring someone into a laboratory, you don't tell them what time it is, and you don't give them anything fun to do, it's just boring, no sensory stimulation, nothing like that, and they're not sleep-deprived. If that's the situation, you'll find that people will stay up for about 16 hours continuously before spontaneously wanting to go to sleep. And then when they sleep, they'll sleep for about eight hours. And again, this is without knowing what time it is. And this is unusual in the mammalian world. Again, only humans and some New World or South American species of primates will do this. Yeah, it was interesting a couple of years ago that history professor from Virginia Tech, Robert Eckrich, was looking at historical texts and he kept noticing this idea of a first and second sleep, or that's what he called it. So period where they go to bed and then they wake up in the middle of the night, they're up for a few hours. During that time, they run around tell stories, have sex, things like that, and then they go back to bed for a second extended period. And what people postulated on that probably falsely is that that is the natural human way of sleeping. The way I interpret it is that it was another way that humans can sleep that is probably natural as well and probably related to the season. So if it's longer, dark periods, then you might fall asleep earlier and have that bifurcated sleep. What are your thoughts on that idea? I agree. I thought you know, Dr. Eckert, she was a very interesting set of ideas looking at that. And I agree with you that it's more related to the capacity of the human system to be flexible than it is related to kind of a pre-programmed default system. 
I don't know what the default is, but I think that it is another possibility. And I agree that it's mainly due to if you were living in the Middle Ages and you had access to fire and you weren't wealthy and you didn't have a lot of candles, when the sun goes down, you're going to go to sleep. And even if you look etymology, you look at the word midnight. Midnight is the middle of the night. It's not the time you go to sleep. It's the time that was in the middle of everything. And so when you look at that, we don't have the capacity to sleep from, especially the further away from in the Northern Hemisphere where it get quite cold at night. We also don't have the capacity to sleep for 12 hours or from sundown to sunup. We just don't have that much sleep in us. And so if that's going to be the case where you're going to try to go to sleep early, you're going to have to wake up in the middle of the night and do something. And again, it makes more sense to kind of wake up in the middle of the night and have an extended period of wakefulness in the middle of the night to kind of bifurcate that sleep, as you say, as opposed to trying to sleep for 10 or 12 hours and just waking up and having several minutes of sleep periodically. We see naps are another way that sleep is bifurcated, certainly in many populations throughout the world. Interesting speaking with Dr. Jerry Siegel of UCLA, one of my first interviews for Human OS, he was talking about the three hunter-gatherer groups that he looked at in Bolivia and in Africa and saying that he really didn't notice much sleep time at all, less than 2% of the population slept, even though they didn't sleep very long, different times of day. And then talking with David Sampson, he reported to me that in a soon-to-be-published paper of hunter-gatherers in a different part of Africa, that most of them did sleep. So again, shows that flexibility versus saying it's natural to do it one way and not the other. Right. And I think that the careful thing here is this word natural that, that people throw around when referring to sleep patterns. And the question is, are there costs or benefits with sleeping in particular ways, since we obviously have the capacity to sleep in various ways. If you're only sleeping, say, four hours at night and then having multiple naps during the day, or if you're bifurcating your sleep at night, or if you're having eight hours of sleep at night, what are the costs and benefits of each of these things? Knowing that we have the capacity to do it, but what are the consequences of doing that? And that's something I think that we're struggling with and trying to understand better. And it's in general the consequences of sleep is something that we don't describe well to the public. And even when we describe it, it's somewhat problematic because, you know, for the most part, it ends up being a time use issue where it's not that people don't want to sleep and feel well rested and that they don't understand that it might contribute to their health in the long term. It's that they make decisions saying, well, I understand that, but I'd like to spend time with my family or friends or I've got work to do. And so then the question is, when you're substituting sleep for another activity, what are the costs and benefits of doing that? Yeah. And I remember when David Dinges came from University of Pennsylvania and talked and said that even just kind of repeating what you just said is that people will always defend their own personal time. And so as work times extend and as driving times extend, people are still going to take a couple hour period to even do things that you might not consider super valuable, just sit on the couch, watch television, because you need that personal time. And then when you have less of it, then you need to make it up somewhere. That's right. And this is what I think we need to get a better understanding of is how that time is used and when is it better or worse. So for example, is it better to spend that extra hour getting work done at night, or would it be more productive to get that hour of sleep and increase the productivity your next day because you're not as tired? It's funny. I talk about the consequences of making that choice regularly to skip sleep and to do work. I call this modern day shift work where people come home, they spend time with family, family goes to bed, and then they spend another couple of hours doing work. And one of the reasons why is you're probably getting bombarded by emails and distractions less during that period. So if you have to do some work that requires deeper thinking, it's easier to get that sort of work done. And there might just not be enough time to do it the next day. So there are real consequences to it. But I even personally choose to do that on occasion when the situation calls for it. I need to basically make the sacrifice, but I know what sacrifice I'm making. Right. And these are important kinds of decisions that people make. And I think it's our jobs as scientists and ones that we don't necessarily do very well all the time is to let people make those as informed decisions. You know, make this as an informed decision knowing the field quite well. But I think a lot of individuals make it and don't understand what the consequences are of, of their decisions, both in the short and the long term. Let's say I go to bed three or four hours later than I usually do. But if I sleep as long as I usually do, then that sleep is going to be just as good as I got eight hours, right? Or I got seven hours, whatever I usually get. Let's say you usually sleep from midnight to eight, but you went to bed from three to 11. Same amount of time. Is that sleep as good as it was if you were sleeping during that regular phase where you usually sleep? It's a 
a good question. We don't know the answer. We know that the sleep is different, but we don't know if it's as good because we don't know how to evaluate sleep quality. And people use the term quite loosely, both in public forum and in the scientific literature. It's a very poorly defined word. And we've been doing a lot of work on this issue of sleep quality and been thinking about this quite a bit. And I think that the only kind of sleep quality that we have a handle on is sleep quality from a subjective perspective. So basically, if you wake up in the morning and I say, Dan, how'd you sleep? You'll have an answer. And it could be good or bad, but regardless of what happened during your sleep, that's how you feel about your sleep. And that's the only aspect of sleep quality at the moment that we can really understand. And we actually just did a large analysis of 1,500 people where their sleep was recorded. And this was using polysomnography, which is kind of all these electrodes on your head and asked all these questionnaires and poked and probed and then associated that information with how they claim their sleep was from a subject or a personal perspective. And what we found out is that all the stuff that we're recording, the signal might be there, but it's not something that we standardly can derive from those data. So basically all the stuff that will happen in the sleep lab tells us very, very little about sleep from a subjective or personal perspective. That's so interesting. I really think that going forward, that's the first frontier to capture, is if we can identify what makes someone say they had a good or a bad night, once we identify what that is, then we can then proceed and try to change that. Do you think that has to do with the resolution of current sleep measurement? So polysomnography in a sleep lab, if you had greater resolution with something like MRI or something, do you think that that signal is there, but we just are above it right now? I think that the signal might be there. I think that the resolution is good. I think that much of it rests on historical accidents, I would say. So when we look at sleep, we tend to group it into 20 or 30 seconds at a time and then say, what happened during this 20 or 30 seconds? And then we can stage it. So the typical way to stage it is to say you're in non-REM or REM sleep, REM being rapid eye movement sleep where your body is basically paralyzed and your brain is, the activity is very similar to what occurs during wake. And then in non-REM is a time when you have a lot of synchrony between groups of neurons. And then non-REM can be divided down into different stages, one, two, and three, and there are different kind of characteristics in each of those stages, but there's no 30 second time constant in the brain. This 30 seconds was used because it's what looked good on a piece of paper when this stuff was being recorded. Uh, it was easy to understand, but I'm not sure if that's the appropriate way to describe or quantify what's going on in sleep. And there are various other techniques, and we actually did something called power spectral analysis, where you basically look at where the oscillations in the brain, at the speed of these oscillations. And when you look at it that way, it actually, much to our surprise and disappointment, really didn't contribute either. But I think there are other signals in there that we might be able to detect. And I think it's important going forward. And then, you know, similarly, when you look at sleep functions, so if you look at, for example, how good is sleep working with consolidating memory or how good is sleep working to restore energy in the brain or how good is sleep working to clear out cellular debris out of the brain, all of these things are functions of sleep that I would say are equally, if not more so important than the personal subjective quality of sleep. And we have no idea how to capture that part and, and to say whether or not these are happening more effectively or less effectively in people. Could you give us a general description of circadian biology and circadian rhythms? Sure. So circadian rhythms are near 24-hour rhythms. These are ubiquitous in nature. Every living organism that has been studied on the planet Earth has a circadian rhythm. This goes from humans all the way down to single cell organisms that don't have a nucleus. Everything has a circadian rhythm. So it's an absolutely fundamental part of evolution in life. So again, there's these 24 hour rhythms. It's an internal clock. And this internal clock can do several things. One is that it coordinates different cellular events or different physiologic events, different things going on in the body, depending on how large an organism you are, in time. So it makes sure that things happen at the same time. It also synchronizes what's happening with internal time to external time. Now, at least in modern days, what it means is that if you travel, 
and all of a sudden your body ends up in a new time zone and you start going on a different sleep-wake schedule, this internal clock will synchronize with the external light-dark cycle that you're on. And the other thing that it does that's a really a critical importance is that because it's able to keep track of time, it allows for predictive physiology. And so it allows the body to anticipate that things are going to occur and then respond prior to their occurrence. So for example, one of the things that is the timing of which is strongly controlled by a circadian clock is the timing of cortisol production. So cortisol production does lots of things, but one of the main things that it does is that it frees up glucose for you to use, and it actually starts to rise. So cortisol has kind of a sinusoidal rhythm, and it's lowest during the night and starts to rise a couple of hours before your anticipated wake time. And so basically what it does is it's anticipating when you're going to wake up, and it starts to free up glucose in anticipation of that event. Because you need lots of glucose when you wake up to control blood pressure, amongst other things. And so instead of responding to waking up, it's predicting that you're going to wake up. And so this is an example of this predictive physiology. And there are some classic studies in bees showing that they can basically know when different flowers are going to be open and ready to have their pollen taken at different times of day. Mm. And the bees know what time of day it is, and so they can get there just as these flowers are opening, as opposed to waiting for the flower to open, sensing that the flower is open, and then heading to the flower. So it's a very important thing. And one of the other things that does that that's kind of critical is in this timing of things, it allows for much more precise control of energy. So basically, you don't waste energy by making things that are unnecessary at particular times of day. So for example, if you're supposed to be awake during the day and asleep at night, and there are various proteins that might be very useful for being active and awake during the day, no need to waste energy and make them at night. Right. And so again, I think it's one of the reasons that it's so ubiquitous in nature. It has to do with that energetic aspect is that it can really help save a considerable amount of energy. Okay. So to rephrase it, the internal circadian system is coordinating with external timing. And then part of that process is to anticipate a certain type of physiological activities at different times of day and behaviors, and then kind of prepare the body to be able to act accordingly to whatever the needs are of that time of day. Mm -hmm. Cool. So what are the signals that our circadian system responds most strongly to? Well, the circadian system to remain synchronized with the outside world basically responds to light. There are some other signals, but they are much, much less potent in terms of being like a hundredfold less important than light. And light exposure is anything you can see. Anything you can see can impact your circadian clock. And for the most part, we get normal kinds of light exposure, room lighting, outdoor lighting. And this is called integrated and determines with some other internal factors the timing of your clock. Light comes into the eye, it goes back to master clock. So what is that? Yeah, so light comes in through the eye and interacts with both the standard rods and cones that you use for vision, for seeing images, as well as a special group of cells in the back of the eye that we actually didn't know about until about 15 years ago. And these specialized cells also can detect the light. And the combination of the rods and cones and these specialized cells, which are called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, these kind of send information to the brain, to lots of different areas of the brain, including the circadian clock. But they also send this information to other areas of the brain that control things like hormone production, pupil size, how alert you're feeling. So there are other functions of this light signal, but when it sends it back to the circadian clock, the circadian clock is located in a nucleus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's a very small group of neurons. There are about 10,000 neurons on both sides of the brain. And in this small group of neurons, this is where the circadian clock is located. So each one of these neurons can act as a clock independently. But what happens is that these 20,000 neurons in total all fire synchronously together and are highly coordinated and have a kind of a singular clock output. And so that's where all of this action is occurring. And the SCN or the suprachiasmatic nucleus is in the hypothalamus of the brain. And it's located, as the name would indicate, above the optic chiasm, which is basically where the nerve fibers from the retina are going to... Uh, the thalamus cross, and it's located just above that crossing, or supra, or above, chiasmatic, 
chiasm. So these 20,000 neurons are firing synchronously. And what is the output of the circadian clock to affect physiology throughout our body? So they have a rhythmic firing output. So they fire high at some times of the day and low at other times of the day. And this nucleus basically innervates lots of other nuclei, which then transmits the information to basically all parts of the brain and body. And that's some of which we understand, some of which we don't. So some of the pathways are well worked out, others not so much. But if you look at most aspects of brain function or body function, there's going to be an aspect of circadian rhythms. And when you look at most body tissue, so if you look at lung tissue or liver tissue or immune cells or skin cells, these all have clocks in them. They're not circadian clocks, but they do run at 24 hours and they are synchronized to each other and with the rest of the body through signals from the suprachiasmatic nucleus. When you say they're not circadian clocks, does that mean that they are not controlling the circadian rhythm, but they're basically in control by the circadian system? Right. Basically, they don't have the ability to be autonomous and synchronized to the outside world without the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Okay, so let's talk about a real-world example then. You brought it up a little bit earlier, jet lag. This is a really common example to help people understand how circadian rhythms work. And one that I often share is, let's say you and I hopped on a flight and we went to Italy. Then as soon as we landed, our biology would still be synchronized with San Francisco time because that's where we are. But over the course of several days, as our bodies were exposed to the different light signals and behavioral rhythms, then the timing of our own internal clock would then shift. So that is, again, mostly probably through taking in light. And how long can that take? What is it, about nine time zones that a person is going across to go from here to mid-Europe? Something like that. So in general, without doing much, it takes about a day per time zone. So the flight to Italy sounds quite nice. Well, I should say the flight doesn't sound nice. Being in Italy sounds much nicer. And so, yeah, that would take about nine days to adjust. And there are ways to accelerate that adjustment. And basically, it's getting light in the new time zone as rapidly as possible. That's the general rule of thumb. But there are fancier ways of getting light and avoiding light at particular times in order to accelerate that process. Right. So really controlling your light, even though it feels counter to what your body is used to, it helps you adjust faster. It does. Okay. So under doing everything right... It still takes about a day per time zone, so it's still nine days or so to fully adjust. Again, if you avoid light at particular times and get light at other times, you can probably do it in half that amount of time. Are there ways to accelerate the shifting of time zone even faster? Sure. So it's something that is pervasive in modern society, and it's not just in jet lag when thinking about traveling long distances, but it's also in what you mentioned before, which is that on some nights you decide to stay up later. Yeah. And when thinking about the circadian system, and again, there are lots of different areas the circadian system influences, but the one of the easiest to understand, I think, is how it influences sleep. And the circadian system works in concert with another system, which is referred to as a homeostatic system. And the homeostatic system for sleep, we don't know where it is or what it is, But what we do know is it's intuitive in the sense that the longer you've been awake, the more tired you get, and the more sleep that you get, the less tired you become. So it's kind of an appetitive process. This system interacts with the circadian system to create the sleep-wake patterns that we observe. And the circadian system has a very strong signal that starts in the afternoon and builds up throughout the evening to promote wakefulness. So you can think of it as you wake up in the morning, as the day goes along, you build up more and more pressure to go to sleep because you've been awake longer and longer. And then in about in the middle of the afternoon, when you built up enough pressure that you could go to sleep, the circadian system says, no, 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 let's stay awake. The circadian system builds in strength to counter that build in strength of the homeostatic pressure for sleep, allowing you to stay awake for 16 hours. And so you have a very strong drive to stay awake in those hours just prior to normally going to sleep. So anyway, that's kind of background for this. So the reason I mentioned that is because when you decide on a given night to stay up later than you might normally, by exposing yourself to light when you're doing your work, you've actually dragged your circadian system to a later time point. And then on the next night when you want to go to sleep, you're now trying to go to sleep when your circadian system is telling you to be awake. Right. And so then it becomes difficult to go back to your old schedule. 
And people have described this as kind of a social jet lag, which usually they're describing more on weekday versus weekend shifts, but it also happens within the week in a lot of working people. And one can argue that this is not good, but the point is that this is modern society and it's going to be hard to turn back the clock on this. So getting then to your question then about how can we accelerate this adjustment, we're talking about light exposure and how that adjusts circadian timing. And light exposure can adjust circadian timing in a way that is dependent on when the light is given. So in general, light given at the beginning of the night, just prior to when you go to sleep or in those first few hours after you would normally be asleep, delays the circadian rhythm. So what that means is that things that would occur today after being delayed are going to occur later tomorrow. Right. So if you normally go to sleep at 11 and you experience light that would delay your system, your system is going to want to then go to sleep at, say, 12 the next day. So you stay up late one night doing work because nobody works in the dark or most people don't, then you're getting light exposure. And that light exposure at a time when you usually are not exposed to light gives your circadian clock more of a daytime signal and the body is trying to adjust to it. So it shifts the clock. That means that your alertness rhythms are off the next day. So they start later and they end later. That throws you off. So if you had to do this and you didn't want your clock to shift, what would you do at night when you're working? And then is there anything else that you could do to minimize shifting, even if you have to stay up late? Sure. So there are kind of two strategies that are generally successful in this way, and they both revolve around light exposure. And the first is to understand the light that you're getting at night is viewed by the circadian clock in a relative way. It's saying, how bright is this compared to the light that you've gotten during the daytime? And so if you go out and get a lot of light during the day, it'll minimize the impact of that light at night. The other way to do it is to play with the spectral or the color content of the light that you're getting at night. And this has proved very popular amongst many people, at least in the Bay Area, where they use a program like Flux, or I believe Apple now has integrated this into their current operating system. Night shift. Yeah. So where they can basically change the spectral output of your device to kind of minimize the short or the blue wavelengths that are coming out of it. And the blue wavelengths are interesting because they don't contribute very much to high acuity vision or that precision vision that you need for reading, but they do have a very strong effect on the circadian clock. So by dropping out those wavelengths, you can still have good vision to see things and you minimize the impact of that light on your circadian rhythms. I think a lot of people are aware of that. You can minimize the impact of light at night by pulling out the blue light and you can do that with filtering it with either a program like F.Lux or the program like Night Shift, or you can wear blue filtering lenses. Sure. It doesn't obviate the entire effect because there That's are right. other receptors in the eye that are also responding to light intensity. So you also want to keep the light basically as dim as possible. Is that right as well? I think so. In general, the light isn't particularly bright from a screen. It looks bright, especially in a room which is dark. A light from a computer screen can look quite intense. Uh, in actuality, it's not that bright. And I usually have much more caution for content and activity rather than light. So what are you using your electronics for late at night? Yes, the light is going to have an impact, but also if you're up and you're doing things that are going to increase your stress level, make you anxious, make you depressed, these are going to impact your ability to then fall asleep. And it's an important consideration when thinking about what you do in the evening prior to bedtime and how that's going to impact your ability to sleep. So this is a bit independent of the circadian system, but will eventually impact it. And there's no blanket kind of statement that one can make because different people respond in different ways. So for example, I don't check email in the evening because generally the only emails that I get in the evening are ones that are going to be stressful and say things like, now that you're at home and can't do anything about this, here's this email and tomorrow morning you can deal with it. So I don't have to look at that email at eight o'clock at night. I can look at it at seven o'clock in the morning and it won't disrupt my sleep. For other people though, checking their email is very relaxing because then they know, okay, I've done everything that I needed to do today and you know my table is clear and then they can go to sleep much better. So it very much depends on what you're doing, the content of what you're doing and how that's going to impact your sleep. And sometimes the light that you're getting, even if it's dim, 
is going to impact your circadian system. It has a direct effect as well of alerting your brain, making it more difficult to fall asleep. But that might be offset by the comfort that you're receiving from checking on your email. Now, it's not the best strategy, but it's one that many people do utilize. I think that's a really important point is that you can think about the inputs, but people are individuals. They perceive things differently. You gave a great example. You like to say, hey, I'm going to shut it off now because in the morning is when I can do about it. So I'll just hit the ground running. Other people like to feel on top of what's there and that's stress relieving. So it's how you perceive things. Cool. So going back to the circadian system. Yes. You said there was two strategies. So there's one, which is looking at light at night. And then is there anything else you can do to also prevent the shifting if you're getting, again, light at night? Sure. So the other thing to do is to compensate that light with other lights. So strategically place lighting. So as I mentioned, light early in the night will delay light in the morning prior to waking up. And when you wake up, will cause an advance or cause things to happen earlier. And so, for example, if you're traveling from California to New York, that early morning light in New York is going to push things earlier, which is what you want to do when you're traveling from west to east. Now, the inconvenient part about that is that the brain and the circadian clock is most sensitive to light when you're normally asleep. And so one strategy that people have used is basically to change your sleep-wake timing. And for example, you get up early and you get exposed to light when you need the light, but that kind of truncates sleep and it's a difficult thing to do. You can do it, and people do, but it isn't the easiest strategy. Whenever you're asking people to change their sleep pattern, even if it has direct benefits, it's often problematic in getting them to do this consistently. So we've been working on something which is a bit of an alternative strategy, which is giving light to people while they're asleep. And this has been something that people have played around with since the early 90s, Dan Kripke's lab did several studies looking at this. He's a professor down in San Diego right? and did some very interesting things. And it never really took off because I think there's a lot of concern that if you're applying continuous light for several hours while people are sleeping, well, one, is it going to wake them up? And even if it doesn't wake them up, everyone wakes up spontaneously multiple times a night. And if you were to wake up spontaneously and all of a sudden you've got this incredibly bright light shining down in your eyes that might not be the most conducive thing to sleep. So we've been doing a series of experiments for the past eight or nine years where we're looking at very brief light flashes and the capacity of these light flashes to induce changes in circadian timing. And they're about the length of a camera flash, so it's about two milliseconds in length, and we can give various kinds of sequences of these flashes. And for a variety of reasons, none of which we're totally sure of. But I think the best bet is what's happening is when you get a light flash and then say you wait 10 seconds, 20 seconds until the next light flash, these IPRGCs, so these special cells in the retina that project to the circadian clock have a very unusual physiology. And when you hit them with a light flash and then take the light away, they continue to respond as if the light were still there. So at least from the perspective of these cells, we're giving continuous light exposure. Mm. But in actuality, it's just a very brief flash of light happening every 10 seconds or so. And what we found is that not only can we do this during sleep without it interfering with people's sleep, but it actually is much more potent. It's a much stronger stimulus than continuous light. And we can talk about the various reasons why we think that it's stronger, but it's two or three fold stronger than continuous light. And you can give it during sleep when people are circadian systems are most sensitive. And so the idea here is that you would be able to say, for example, you're taking that nice trip to Italy, you could basically have an exposure to these light flashes before you leave. And then if you're taking a night flight, you could have a wearable device and wear it on the plane, receiving these light flashes. And it's going to adapt your system such that when you land in Italy, your circadian system's already adapted to Italy. So your brain's there and your body just landed. And this is nice. And I think this is something which is going to be very important going forward in terms of Things that are convenient things for businesses, for travelers, also convenient and useful for athletes who are doing a lot of flights and travel around the country and around the world. 
but also it'll have a much greater impact on the sleep regulation that we spoke of earlier, where people have much more random sleep schedules and they can make their sleep worse by going to sleep later on one night and then trying to go to sleep earlier the next night. This device can basically compensate by if you stay up late, but you want to go to sleep regularly the next night, it can provide the offsetting light while you're sleeping. So before you wake up, it would give you light and this would offset the light that you received by staying up late that night without causing you to truncate your sleep and get yeah. five hours versus... Exactly. Memory. So you don't have to change your sleep pattern at all. This would just occur during sleep without impacting your sleep. So let's do a crystal clear scenario. I'll give you a example of something that I've experienced pretty regularly. I'm going to New York. I'm going to give a presentation at a company or a VC fund, and I'm presenting at 8 a.m. So in New York, three hours later, that's different time. I'm actually having to then present and get up at a time when my physiologically I'm most sleepy across the day. Right. Being in San Francisco, how would I use this technology to then help myself feel more alert when I arrive in New York and have to present at 8 a.m., which is 5 a.m. my time? Sure. So for example, let's just say you're going to fly out on Thursday morning and arrive Thursday afternoon and then give that presentation Friday morning. Sound reasonable? Yep. All right. So on Wednesday overnight, you would get exposed to light flashes that would help you basically shift your circadian system from California to New York. Starting at what time would I start to get the flashes? About two hours before your normal wake time. Okay. So not three, even though that's the time zone. You want to do it gradually? Well, it's not that. It's that we can get basically a very large change by just doing two hours prior to you waking up. So I usually wake up at seven. Right. So between five and seven on Wednesday, you get the light flashes. Your brain's going to start then shifting to New York time at that point. And then Thursday night, you're probably going to have to get up early to get to that airport. And it's going to be easy to do that because your brain is already in New York or pretty close to New York at that point. Yeah. And then you're going to get on the plane. And so your plane might be leaving SFO at 8 a.m. So you got to get there at six and you're waking up at five. But five o'clock already, that's okay because in your brain, it's not five. In your brain, it's eight. And have you looked at how disruptive the light flashes are compared to continuous light? So we haven't compared continuous light during sleep. We have searched quite a lot to whether the light flashes are disruptive. And I have to say they can be disruptive in some people. Some people are very sensitive to external light and any sort of light that they receive is going to be disruptive to their sleep. This is definitely the minority of people in all the people that we've tested in the laboratory and that we've tested out in the real world, in general, we have fairly high acceptance. And we've actually just completed a trial in teenagers where what we're trying to do with them is enable them to go to sleep at an earlier time. So we give them this light stimulation late in the night prior to waking up to move their system to an earlier time. So that way, when clock time in California is one o'clock, their brains are already going to be ready for sleep because their brains are going to be thinking that it's already three or four o'clock in the morning. So that's really exciting to me. So teenagers undergo something called delayed sleep phase syndrome. So they want to stay up later and wake up later. And because they're still growing, they still need a lot of sleep, nine hours in bed, school start early. So you have this condition where they have more alertness later at the night. They have to get up for school early in the morning. And so because of the natural amount of sleep that they need, a lot of them are chronically sleep deprived. That's right. And so we've been able to basically get them an extra 40 minutes of sleep per night using this. And when we started this, I have to say, I went in a bit naively thinking that they actually wanted to go to sleep earlier, but we had to convince them that going to sleep earlier was actually an okay thing to do. So the first thing we did was basically just piss them off because we just gave them a system that made them get tired earlier, but not go to sleep earlier. And then we worked with them to try to convince them that it was actually okay to go to sleep earlier. And now, again, we're getting fairly consistently an extra 40 minutes of sleep. And this is a system that we're constantly optimizing. And I was a bit disappointed that it was only 40 minutes. I was hoping that they'd get closer to two hours, but hopefully in the next iteration, we'll get even more from that. So it sounds like pairing this sort of technology with some education is better than the technology by itself. In teenagers, definitely so because there's going to be the motivation factor. One of the things that I like about this, at least for the business traveler or the athlete or just the general adult who has an erratic sleep schedule, is that it's a passive technology. You don't have to do anything except tell the system when you want to get up or where you're going to be traveling to, and it will figure out the rest. You don't change your sleep schedule, it'll change it for you. 
It applies the light during your sleep. You don't have to change anything about that. You know, one of the things that we've been doing these kinds of light-based therapies for many years, and uh, compliance is always an issue. So a standard light therapy for someone who wants to go to sleep at an earlier clock hour would be to get up earlier and to sit in front of a very bright light for a couple of hours. No one wants to do that. This is not something that people really want to do. And there have been some clever adaptations in different populations. I've seen both for for in older individuals where you want to get them extra light and in kids when you want to get specifically time light. They've actually flipped large computer screens horizontally and made them into a table that people can play on. So some older people can play mahjong on it and it gives them extra light from below. So where they're looking at, or they do it as a table for kids and they can do drawing on the table. Right. And all that light is then coming right up into their eyes. And it's a much more effective strategy than say, putting it on a table and say, well, you got to look at this light continuously for a couple of hours for it to have an effect. Right. Maybe effective, but not practical. That's right. And so that's why I think there's something like these flashes during sleep is in fact more effective than the continuous light and exceedingly practical. And we've been working with a group of students who are looking to commercialize it. And I don't have any financial interest in this, but I do have personal interest in it because they want to basically turn this into a wearable device. And I think that that's one useful form factor. And then some people don't like wearing things on their face. And so hopefully they'll be coming out with a bedside lamp form factor as well. So it's very exciting seeing something that has been a long time in process in the lab move out into the real world and actually help people. So I've been very interested in quantified self technologies for a while, and I'm interested both in education to help people to understand the real benefits and understand sleep better so that they have more motivation to modify their behavior. And then also the wearable technologies that can monitor how you're sleeping, which can help promote the right set of behaviors. But to me, this technology is the first tech that can really modify your sleep versus your behaviors around sleep. And that's exciting to me. I have a bias, but I agree. Monitoring sleep is very tricky because it gets back to the original question of why are we monitoring sleep? What is the information that we're getting from that monitoring? And can it be used to improve your sleep? And right now, most of the devices that I've seen that are out there have very generic feedback to the user that's not very specific. It takes in the user information and says, oh, you know, you slept seven hours last night. Try for a little more. And some are more environmentally aware of saying they've got light sensors and saying, oh, you know, light's coming in. Perhaps this is disturbing your sleep. But most of them don't integrate the component of asking the person what they felt their sleep was like. Again, as you know, there's a wide variety of how much sleep people need. And so saying seven hours is sufficient or insufficient is not very telling. In fact, when we looked at in this large cohort, we saw that the total amount of sleep time had almost no impact on how people say they felt the sleep quality. And that's at a group level. So it's basically saying sleeping five hours doesn't have any inherent meaning. If you normally sleep six hours and are sleeping five, that's a little truncation. If you're normally sleeping nine hours and sleep five, that's a big truncation. And so a lot of this stuff has to be really contextualized within the individual to see how it's impacting that specific individual. And I'm curious too, when was the question, how well did you sleep, asked? So it was the morning that they woke up after the sleep recording. Within an hour? Oh yeah, a few minutes. So that, that's a confound too, because sleep inertia. Sure. I know that some people don't really become alert until an hour or later after they sleep. So they got a great night's sleep, they feel sleepy, but then they have a different quality of alertness over the course of the day than if they got, let's say, five hours. And they might feel similar to five minutes after they woke up that they did when they got eight hours, but they do feel differently an hour and later. For the rest oh, that's of the day. definitely true. There's the time course of sleep inertia. There's also looking at changes in daytime alertness and associating that with different aspects of sleep. Yeah. So how alert are you at four in the afternoon may very well be impacted by the kind of sleep that you received and that eight hours might not be equal eight hours for everyone. So again, all these things have impact and really, I think, speaks to the universal impact of sleep on pretty much all functions in the body. Right. Well, that's really exciting. I think that oftentimes you can see technology overreaching, misused, even the less sophisticated technologies that are around now, I think have a place when they're viewed correctly. But seeing this, it feels to me like it's a really true advancement 
Not only could you use it if you are regularly traveling across time zones to be more alert, both where you're going, but also when you return, but you can also use it for the quote unquote social jet lag, which is staying up several hours later, being exposed to light than what you usually do. So you're not traveling time zones, but essentially you're promoting that through your behaviors. And then also for teenagers who have delayed sleep phase, and even adults that have that as well, the tendency to have delayed sleep phase, where you get this light exposure, these pulses of light earlier in the morning, and it helps them feel more alert during the day and sleepier at more reasonable times in the evening. Tons of application, definitely athletes, like you mentioned, very exciting stuff. Yeah, I think so. I'm very excited about it. You know, we've got a lot of work to do to optimize it. The thing that we'd like to get to eventually is to get large enough changes. So right now, we know that we can get a two to three hour change in circadian timing in a single night. I think we can get much larger changes. And if we can get much larger changes, then we can capture shift workers. And that to me would be a really important advancement because shift workers, you've got people who sometimes by choice, but many times by economic necessity are forced into working odd shifts. And on their off days, they want to spend time with friends and family. Right now, we don't have the capacity to switch people 12 hours in a single day. Yeah. And if we could do that, I think that, again, would be extremely helpful. So much of shift work is absolutely necessary work for our society. Police, fire, emergency, first responders. So if this technology could help with that as well, that has a major positive impact on society. I think so. And this is really where we're going with this. And that's what I'd like to see is that kind of impact and that kind of change. What is the name of the company that is commercializing this technology? They are called Lumos Tech. Lumos Tech. Yeah. They were Stanford-based postdocs. Some have left. Some are still here, and they were just part of a program that tries to commercialize things that were invented at Stanford. And this technology was invented by a, a colleague of mine who did some work in mice. So I'm out of the financial loop for that, but to me, it's far more important to see this kind of thing be done right and be done in a way that can impact society. I love that about Stanford. There's an entrepreneurial spirit of Silicon Valley has certainly influenced Stanford. And so they are thinking, how can we use the technologies that we're discovering here to benefit the world in some way? And I think that's how it should be. I think that's great. Yeah, I think so. That's a definite plus, I think. Well, this is phenomenal information, Jamie. Thanks for joining us on Human OS and well, talking to us about the, yeah, the circadian system and now soon to be available, hopefully. Actually, do you know when this might hit the market? That I don't know. Hopefully this year. They're still doing beta testing and optimizing stuff like that. Okay, so it's not available now, but maybe within the year. I'm hoping so. I think hopefully within less than a year. Thanks again, Jamie, and uh, appreciate having you on. All right, I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Definitely. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.